The following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Sometimes you boys and girls have been told you may do something or ought to do something and may not do something. And you ask the question, why? And sometimes you get the answer, because I said so. Right? Because I said so. Now, sometimes that's the only real answer you can get, because either you wouldn't understand the reason behind it, you wouldn't have time to get the explanation before you were uh, out of danger, or it would cause you to think badly about other people. There's lots of reasons that parents at times will simply say, you must not do this, or you must do this because I say so. Well, sometimes it's that way with God. It's not wrong to ask God why. We, we've seen that Job asked God why. That wasn't really what was wrong with his, his lament. Uh, and, and we do ask God why. Why would a, a man in the midst of life who's a, a very godly father and elder and churchman be stricken with Lou Gehrig's disease? Why would a young missionary in, in uh, Haiti, making great progress in, in the work of the gospel, uh, be killed in a tragic uh, auto accident? Sometimes we ask why. The only answer is because it's God's will. Other times he shows us why, and sometimes he'll show us why in the ensuing events. But sometimes there's a certain silence. In fact, this is one of the themes in the book of Job. If you've ever thought about it, God never tells Job why. Now, at the end, when Elihu or Job or who, whoever wrote this book writes it, then Job will know the answer. But in the midst of all that's going on, God never answered that question, why? Even when God catechizes Job at the end of the book. And so, our questions can go unanswered, and at which time we must learn to submit to God, because he's holy, and, and he's wise, and he's transcendent. And that's really what Eliphaz is teaching here. He, he applies it wrongly, as we'll see. But what he says about God is absolutely true. Now, you remember we're in the midst of his speech. Job, in his speech in chapter 3, did two things. He first um, uh, wished he hadn't been born. Then he wished he died at birth. And finally, he begins in his faith to struggle. And he asks the question, why? Why keep playing this out? God, why don't you just take my life now? God remains silent. But Eliphaz is not going to be silent. He's been sitting there. As Job is speaking, he's been planning his response, and he's reached a conclusion sometime in those seven days as he's considered what's happened to Job and what he believes about God and about righteousness, and he's determined that Job is, in fact, has fallen into great sin. And so in verses 1 through 11, Eliphaz comes and basically accuses Job of hypocrisy. He's been a teacher of others in the past, but he has fallen into sin. He's hiding that sin. Eliphaz seeks to, to confirm and, and drive home that judgment with three arguments. In the first place, 
Job is next to destruction. He's about to die, and the righteous don't die in the midst of life. Second argument is, a man reaps what he sows. And we see that Job is in the midst of, of this awful, terrible agony and, and uh, uh, pain, affliction. Surely he has sown much evil to merit this. And then the, the awfulness of that is the manifestation of uh, the wrath of God poured out on sinners. So he, he sought to indict Job to to quicken his conscience, to, to bring him to a point. And now he reinforces what he has said in his assumptions about Job with a revelation from God. And in this revelation from God, God is teaching us, because he's a transcendent holy God, we must submit to him. In this revelation, because he's a transcendent holy God, we must submit to him. And by God's grace, I will show you two things, the method of the revelation and the message of the revelation. You boys and girls can get that. The method of the revelation. The message of the revelation. Well, the method of revelation is a vision. And the Holy Spirit records this vision for us in verses 12 through 16. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me. And trembling, it made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Now, there's some that suggest that Eliphaz actually invented this vision to further his purposes against Job. There's a number of reasons to reject that. In the first place, Eliphaz was a righteous man. Uh, he has not come as a corrupt sinner himself. He is a man who loves God and knows a bit about God. His problem is not what he knows, but what he thinks he knows and what he applies. And there would be no reason then for this righteous man to uh, invent this. And moreover, as we'll look at the vision a little more in a moment, you'll see it's very consistent with other records we have in Scripture about visions. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer contrasts the former means revelation with that which was through Christ. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, this reference to a God speaking in the past in many portions, in many ways, takes us back to the ways that God revealed himself to the old covenant saints. And those ways are summarized for us when Miriam and Aaron rebelled against Moses. And God says this in Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. God explains the three ways he revealed himself, dreams, visions, and face-to-face -face communication. Listen to this. He said, Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him, in a vision, I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So boys and girls, you'll see that there were three ways that God spoke to our fathers in the Old Testament. Dreams, visions, 
in face-to-face -face communication. Now, a dream, a revelatory dream, in one sense, is no different from the dream you had last night. The dream you had last night would be something that was in your subconscious, and actually it's the Spirit of God that causes those things to come uh, to your mind. It's like a projector. A revelatory dream, though, is that God puts the film in the projector. It doesn't come out of your mind. It's something that God places in your mind and reveals to you through a dream. Now, God most often used dreams for those who were either young and immature, even unconverted. And so we read instances of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar having revelatory dreams. Young Joseph had a revelatory dreams and other as well. But it was particularly for those that would be either young in the faith or not even in the faith. God would bring a dream. But the dream always came because it came from God with a, a certainty that this was a divine message. See, we don't wake up in the morning wondering, what in the world am I to do with this? Because there's, there's, there's reverence, there's fear, there's awe in our hearts about what we dream. No. With those dreams, God sent the certainty, as he did there with Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, that this was a divine message. Now, the vision, and that's what's before us now, I call a vision an out-of-body experience. A vision is when God communicates to a person not through the physical senses, but directly to the soul. Sometimes the person would be in a trance, and God would simply cause them to see and hear things. Sometimes it was literally an out-of-body experience, such as Ezekiel's case, and he's lying there by the river, and his soul goes down to Jerusalem. And there God shows him things. Sometimes it appears the person perhaps is even awake, like John on the Isle of Patmos, lying on his face before God. But in all these experiences, God now communicates much more directly, not through the physical senses, but to the soul. And then the third way that God would communicate in the Old Testament would be what he says here, a mouth-to-mouth -mouth revelation, where he spoke directly to Moses. And Moses then would give that message to the people. Now, those are the ways that God revealed himself, not just here with Moses, but throughout the Old Testament, dreams and visions and mouth-to-mouth, uh, face-to-face communication. Of course, that's all brought together for us in our doctrine of inspiration. And what the Holy Spirit's done, he took these various dreams and visions and mouth-to-mouth -mouth revelations and then inspired writers of Scripture to record them without error. And here in the Bible now, we have a complete mouth-to-mouth communication. But back to the vision. It was a frightening experience that Eliphaz describes here, wasn't it? He says that this word came to him stealthily. It was secretly brought like a whisper. In the night, when deep sleep falls on a man, the midst of night, and in sound sleep, he now is overwhelmed in his soul with dread. Bones are trembling. His legs were quaking. And he was aware of this awful presence. He said that the, a spirit passed by my face, uh, probably an angel. The hair of my flesh bristled up, just as you'll see this on a dog. But sometimes our hair will do the same thing when we are greatly, greatly afraid. And then that spirit stood still. He, he couldn't really make out its appearance even though there was a form. But in the silence, then, 
he heard a voice speaking to him stealthily, whispering to him this message. Now, now what we have here is very consistent with other records of, uh, of visions in the Bible. So think how Daniel was sick for days after he had a vision. Others as well uh, took a long time to recover from this uh, awful transaction between God and them. Uh, think of the similarities between what uh, Eliphaz describes and what uh, happened with Abraham in Genesis 15. Now when the sun was going down, listen, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to him, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. So Eliphaz has this vision, a frightening experience. Sometimes you kids get scared in the night, you simply pull the covers over your head, and you think whatever's scaring you might go away. Well, I'm sure that's a bit how Eliphaz felt. I want you to contrast this with the claims of the modern charismatics who prance about on stages and their meetings and their styled hair and their thousand-dollar Italian suits, and they start claiming a word from the Lord. What's the word from the Lord that we have tonight? You know, if they had a word from the Lord, they would fall flat of their faces. They couldn't stand before this holy God. They would be like Eliphaz, broken and trembling and, and uh, bones shaking. No, they're frauds. The very revelation we have here teaches us that they are frauds. The very completeness of our Bible tells us they're frauds. So one of the problems with these, uh, well, it's not a problem, uh, the difficulty is that the, the, the message is always incomplete, you see. It's like a gigantic crossword puzzle as, as these messages, these visions and dreams and face-to-face -face revelation slowly are put together in the Old Testament and finally come to their fulfillment in the New Testament. It's incomplete. But now, it's been made complete through the true face-to-face -face revelation that God took to himself a human nature and came as the Logos, and God the Son revealed the Father to us in all splendor and glory. He also did it in what I will call a user-friendly way, that we now have the Word of God, you see, uh, without having to go through the trauma of being face-to-face -face with God. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 5, now the people did not want to see or hear God. They wanted a mediator between them and God. God came in uh, the, the lightning and the thunder and, and the fire of Sinai, and they said, let us not hear God anymore. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God has not come to us then. He comes to us so kindly and so gently in Christ Jesus by his Spirit. As our catechism says, that God reveals himself to us, his will to us, by his word and by his Spirit. So we have now a completed word of God. And as surely, my friends, as surely as God spoke to Eliphaz in that vision, the Spirit of Christ will speak to you when you read the Scriptures and when you hear them preached. And that reminds us of how we're to approach these things. We're to do so with, a, with awe, 
The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 161, My heart stands in awe of your words. Do you stand or sit in awe of the word of God as you read it? Do you have family readings and corporate worship? The Westminster Larger Catechism instructs us, how is the word of God to be read? The Holy Scriptures to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them. This is the word of God. A firm persuasion that they are the word of God, that he only can enable us to understand them, thus it must always be by the Spirit that God speaks to us. It's a dead book, you understand, unless the Spirit same spirit who through the angel came to Eliphaz. If the Holy Spirit does not speak to you through the scriptures, they remain a dead book. And so he only can enable you to understand them with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them with diligence and attention to the matter, the scope of them. We're to read them with proper means and tools, meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. Is this how you approach your daily reading of Scripture? You sit there aware that God's going to speak to you if you seek Him by His Spirit. And you sit there then in awe and reverence. Do you say, Speak, Lord, your servant listens? And the same is true with preaching. What is required of those that hear the word preach is required of those uh, that hear the word preach that they uh, attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Is this how you approach preaching? You understand that you have no more immediate access to the living voice of God than you do in a sermon. It is more than in private reading. As our confession says, the reading of Scripture, but particularly the preaching of the Scripture, the means by which God converts and sanctifies. You approach preaching understanding this. That you are to sit in humility. You are to listen with reverence and awe and wonder and seek what does God have to say to you now and then to store it up in your hearts afterwards. So we learn a lot from this method of revelation. We learn about God's goodness, how he once came to his saints, but the greater goodness, how he comes to us in his word by his spirit. But may we have the same awe and a proper godly fear as we handle scripture. Scriptures become rote for us, don't they? And become commonplace. I know that's my problem. and I'm sure it's the problem with many of you. We handle them so carelessly. May God give us grace to handle them with awe and reverence. What then is the message of this revelation? We've considered its method. Well, the message begins with a question. In verse 17, can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, it's a profound question, but you might be tempted to say, well, it's an awful lot of of announcing and and prelude for for this revelation, isn't it? But stop and think for a moment. They didn't have any scripture. What they had was the revelation that had been passed on 
from Adam to his sons to Noah to his sons to men like Job and, and Eliphaz and, and Abraham and others. There have been other visions. We know Abraham had at least that one vision. God also came to him uh, face to face. But you understand, when I talk about incomplete revelation, it's just slowly being put together. And if you just stop for a moment and think about the question, is there really any more important question than this question? Hear it again. Can mankind, and that's the word that uses man in his weakness and frailty, be just before God? Can a man, and there's the word used for a man who's strong and powerful, be pure before his maker? What's the answer? No. No. None of us in our natural condition can do that. This is something that's been repeated uh, throughout Scripture. We saw in Psalm 143, verse 2, For in your sight no man living is righteous. As we saw in Romans chapter 3, Paul builds his own theology of justification on the impossibility of anyone being justified by works from this principle, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. We see it here from Job through Scripture, this question being repeated. But here's the first time that God reveals this truth in terms of what we have in Scripture. Through this most remarkable question that simply implies, as we've read in Romans chapter 3, that we're all born dead in sins and trespasses. And thus no man, regardless of of who he is, no weak man, no strong man, no boy, no girl, can ever make themselves right in the sight of God, can ever clean their heart and purify it from sin. The question implies the... uh, The answer, no, 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 it is not possible for any person to make himself right or clean in the sight of God. And then to enforce this, he says before us the transcendent holiness of God in contrast first to angels and then to us. He begins with the angels in verse 18. He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges no error. Now he's speaking here with some hyperbole to make this point, to show uh, the transcendence, the, the separateness, the holiness of God from every creature, even those creatures that are sinless. So first he takes angels. He takes the elect angels who have not fallen. And he says, in comparison to God, in comparison to God, God cannot even trust them. He doesn't put any confidence in them. They're his servants. He sends them out on their errands, and they serve him faithfully, but the, the distance is so great between him and them that he's not, he's not resting in them to accomplish his purpose. He's using them, but he's so high above them. Now, it's made even clearer in the second part. Against his angels, he charges error. Holy angels. How's God charging error against holy angels? Well, again, it's this transcendence, this separateness. I think that what he's saying here is, is that the holy angels would be no different from the fallen angels if they'd not been sustained by the sovereign grace of God. That's finite created nature. And because 
of that, he's then teaching that they must daily be sustained by him or they would fall away. And that is true of all of us. You must be sustained daily. You must be kept by the grace of God. Now, he does so. But he wants you to understand with what he says about the angels, his separateness. But now he comes, comes to deal with us. A comparison in verse 19. How much more, we could really think about this as an argument from the greater to the lesser. How much more a comparison? Um, how much less those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Between morning and evening, they're broken in pieces. Unobserved, they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them, and they die without wisdom. Do you recognize yourself here in the portrait? He's talking now about human nature. He's talking about every man, woman, boy, and girl, those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is in the dust. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We're there... Um, we read that God took the dust of the ground and shaped a body for Adam and then put the living soul inside that body. And then from Adam made Eve. We're made from the dust of the ground. Angels are pure spirits, immortal, and of a nature that's far beyond ours. We have immortal souls, but uh, they're housed in these houses of clay. And he uses this to remind us, again, of, of how weak we are. You children go to the beach and you make a sand castle and then the waves come and what happens to it? Washes away. That's our lives. They are but clay. They have a foundation that is but dust. But then as we read in our meditation from Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken your dust and to dust you shall return. That is the end of these noble frames that we pamper and care and spend so much money and time on to um, keep them going. We're all going to die until Christ returns and our bodies are going to decay and return to dust. That's what he's saying. That we dwell in houses of clay, the foundation is dust, and to dust they shall return because of sin. If Adam had not sinned, then the the immortal soul would have given immortality to our bodies, they'd be different, which they'll be in heaven after the return of Christ. But now, the soul departs and the body is but dust. But he's not finished with the shortness of our life, the certainty of our death. Crushed before the moth. Have you ever captured a moth? Three or four rubs and what's happened? He's turned to dust. There's nothing there. And that's the figure now. It's even, your life is even shorter, more ephemeral, more uncertain. It's more than dust. It's like a moth. Take the moth. Rub him between your fingers. He's gone. That's the extent of your life. He continues, between morning and evening, broken in pieces. Within one day, thinking perhaps here of Moses will say that our lives are perishing. They're, they're nothing in the sight of God. Uh, a day that passes. Um, that we're here and we're gone. We're unobserved. We perish. The memory's gone. 
He just builds it more profoundly and more profoundly. And then one more figure, their tent cord is plucked up. The, the tent's held by one particular cord. And you pull up that one tent cord and the tent collapses. But then notice, they die. All these figures return to dust like a moth. And a, a, a day, a tent cord, they die yet without wisdom. Such a sad word, you see. I don't know a more profound section of Scripture, maybe Ecclesiastes 12, that speaks to us of death than, than what we have right here. And uh, there are no sadder words than they die without wisdom. You see, we forget that it's appointed a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. This brings us back around to the question. Can a, a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl be righteous in the sight of God? If you die without wisdom... If you die thoughtlessly, if you're not thinking about the end of your life, about the reality, what is your hope, and what are you trusting, what is coming after this feeble, frail experience, feeble as dust and frail, it's death and judgment. Are you ready? Do you think about the reality of death? It's interesting that both Brenda and I, right at the time of her father's memorial, came upon the passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Solomon, by the Spirit, urging us to meditate on death. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. Because there you're face to face with the reality of what is awaiting every one of us. You boys and girls think that that's a long time off, but it's not a long time off. Even if you live to be as old as I am, it's a very short period of time. But many boys and girls die when they're young. Now's the time to think about this. Now's the time to get the wisdom from God. And so what Eliphaz is doing here is he's teaching Job the need to submit to God. And that's, that's good. He's teaching us the need to submit to God. This revelation teaches us to, to submit to God. Uh, and when Job asks why, he must not do so in a complaining way. But Eliphaz misjudged Job, you see. He was going for dealing with a man who had fallen into grievous sin. No, Job sinned. Job will repent of his sin, but he was not a sinner. Job was not the man that, that Eliphaz was uh, describing here as this hypocrite who is under the judgment and wrath of God. So yes, Job must submit and you and I also must submit to God. We can ask why. We may lament the difficulties and struggles in our lives. But we must be willing to accept God's answer. Which sometimes is God's silence. It is my will. But that's not really silence, is it? It's a glorious, glorious answer. We can rest in the sovereign will of our God. We must learn, though, to submit there and to wait on him because he is the transcendent one. We are but frail creatures. So the question then, can one be right with God? Well, it does have a glorious answer. And as we sang, uh, yes. And we'll sing it again in just a few moments. One can be right with God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The one of whom we sang in Psalm 8, who made himself lower than the angels, took to himself this body of clay, and in it, as the perfect God-man, obeyed the law of God perfectly, offered his soul and body as a sacrifice for sin, and he died. But he did not return to dust, did he? He was not snuffed out like a moth. Because it was promised in Psalm 16 that his body would see no decay. And there is the great difference of this God-man who, yes, died in our place, but because his death conquered sin, his body did not decay, which is the promise to you and me that at the end, when our bodies are raised, our bodies will decay, but they'll never decay again. He kept the law of God. He satisfied the wrath of God. So that is the answer then. None of us in ourselves can be righteous before God. But as you trust in Jesus Christ, then God accepts you completely in what we call justification. Your sins are completely pardoned. And God constitutes you. He makes you. He declares you legally righteous in his sight. Now, it's quite possible that some of you here this morning are trusting Christ, but you're still not comfortably answering this question. You've kept your life on a treadmill. You keep thinking that though, yes, I know I'm not righteous in myself, my righteousness is in Christ, but you keep thinking you have to please God for his acceptance. That's a lie of the devil. You do not perform. You do not perform to be accepted by God. You obey because you love him. You obey because you're a new creature. You obey because the spirit of Christ indwells in you. But you don't obey to make God like you. Because God is justified. Because then you've slipped back into the reality. No, no human being, no flesh in himself can be righteous before God. And if this is where you are today, I want you to rest in the confidence of Christ and your justification. But it's also possible there's some here this morning who are still unrighteous. You're trusting in yourself, in your family, in your works, in your efforts for acceptance with God because you've never rested in Christ alone for your acceptance with God. If I'm describing you, the answer is very simple, and the contrast could not be more profound. Either continue as you are, and your body shall decay and turn to its foundation. Your life will be snuffed out, and you'll die without wisdom. Or right now, be wise. Be wise, be instructed by the Holy Spirit. and Repent of your self-righteousness and self-centeredness and, and pride and folly. Cast yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you then can be righteous in him and in him alone. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.